You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hello everyone, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I'm going to start today's episode with a note about pronunciation. I do this because I mucked up an important person's name in this episode, and that is Norwegian explorer Roald Amundsen. I called the man Amundsen, not Amundsen, and not just once, but the entire episode, like 50 times. And the worst part is, I know that it should be Amundsen. Someone even emailed me a couple of months ago to tell me that. And yet, when I recorded, I promptly said Amundsen and kept doing it for the entire episode. If I had done this once or twice, no big deal. But it's the entire show, and rather than redoing the entire recording, I just thought I'd keep what I did and post this mea culpa at the start of things. So there you go. Sorry for the mistake. And with that, let us cue up some epic music to get this episode going. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today is part six in our series on Antarctic explorer Ernest Shackleton. Last time, we wrapped up Shackleton's Nimrod expedition. The affair had been a success, except for one big thing. The team had fallen about a hundred miles short of the South Pole. But Shackleton had come home a hero, published a book, and gotten a knighthood. Life wasn't too bad as 1909 came to a close. But even as all this great stuff happened, we know that another expedition to the South was not far from Shackleton's mine. The obvious thing for Shackleton to do was to make another attempt at the South Pole, but he needed time to do that, and others were queuing up their own attempt, including Robert Falcon Scott. So what we are going to do today is take you through the years 1910 to 1914. We will conclude by getting Shackleton going on his next great adventure, the Endurance Expedition, which will be epic in so many ways. In these between-expedition years, we'll talk about how Shackleton went from a hero cheered by a nation to an afterthought in the world of exploration, as others surpassed his deeds. In the process, we'll discuss the challenges he faced in his life, plus the actual race to the South Pole, all of which will lead to Shackleton's decision to head to the cold of Antarctica one more time. So, a quick recap of the last couple of episodes. Shackleton's Nimrod expedition had gotten within 97 miles of the pole. The scientific element of the expedition had reached the magnetic South Pole a first. Also, Shackleton had discovered Beardmore Glacier, a route from the Great Ice Barrier onto the Antarctic Plateau. I would argue that the discovery of Beardmore Glacier was probably Shackleton's greatest physical discovery as an explorer. It provided a path to the South Pole, and Robert Falcon Scott fully intended to take advantage of the knowledge Shackleton had provided him. Now, on a personal level, Shackleton had extinguished any questions about his abilities. He had shown tremendous physical and mental stamina, and he had grown immensely as a leader. Most of his men respected him, and some were now devoted to him. Also, any doubts about Shackleton's accomplishments were put to rest as well. After his return to England, some had suggested that Shackleton had not gotten as far south as he had claimed, but Shackleton had been meticulous about his calculations, just to avoid this kind of controversy. And after a thorough review, his claims were certified by the Royal Geographical Society. And the good things kept coming. Shackleton's book, The Heart of the Antarctic, had been well received, and he was making a little money from it. 
And the common people love Shackleton. He was an ordinary guy who had done some extraordinary things. So as 1910 rolled around, Sir Ernest Shackleton found himself ushered into the salons and the back rooms of England's elite, including the king and queen. It was now time for Shackleton to hit the lecture circuit. This was a whirlwind. He went to continental Europe. In Germany, he delivered his lecture in German and even answered many of the questions in German. In Russia, he was invited to meet Tsar Nicholas. A short private meeting would turn into a two-hour conversation as the Tsar was fascinated by Shackleton's adventures. A swing through Ireland proved to be a great success as the land of Shackleton's birth gave their native son a warm and enthusiastic welcome. In March of 1910, Shackleton would head to America along with Emily. He met President William Taft and audiences loved him. Shackleton's Irishness and his man-of-the-people vibe played well in North America. He wasn't this stuffy Brit, but a funny and engaging and witty speaker who had a knack for connecting with his audience. In Canada, he would meet Prime Minister Sir Wilfrid Laurier and even talk about organizing an expedition to explore the remote areas of the Mackenzie River in the Canadian Northwest. But nothing would ever really come of that idea. Shackleton's tour petered out when he moved into the American Midwest, mostly due to poor advertising, but also a public that just wasn't that interested in polar exploration. However, wherever Shackleton went, there was always the same question. What was next? He would usually reply by saying he was done with exploring, and he even told Emily that he was, quote, never again going south, end quote. Back in England, Shackleton's family moved from Edinburgh to Sheringham, a small village on the Norfolk coast. But Shackleton was rarely home. The lecture circuit was demanding, and he was constantly hustling for a new way to make some money. Now, I am not going to go through all of Shackleton's business ventures, but I will name a couple. First, there was his continuing association with the Tabard Cigarette Company. It would offer him a small but steady source of income, but hardly the pot of gold that he was looking for. And speaking of gold, Shackleton would, for quite a long time, toy with a gold mine scheme in Hungary. It was typical of Shackleton, sinking countless hours and money into something that was immensely sketchy. But that would not stop him from trying, and it would, of course, amount to nothing. Now, as we progress into 1910, I want to shift gears and move our attention to the South Pole. In England, Robert Falcon Scott, with the backing of the Royal Geographical Society, was preparing for a new expedition to Antarctica. Scott would use information gathered from Shackleton to map out his venture. The plan was as such. Scott's ship would depart in the summer of 1910 and head south. From New Zealand, it would be on to Antarctica in January of 1911. A winter camp would be set up at McMurdo Sound. In the spring, Scott would then make a run for the pole, going across the Great Ice Barrier, up Beardmore Glacier, and on to the Antarctic Plateau. Thank you, Mr. Shackleton, for marking that trail. Scott would use a combination of ponies, dogs, and motorized sledges on this journey, but once the team reached Beardmore Glacier, it would be back to manhauling. By the way, the motorized sledges were more advanced versions of what Shackleton had taken on the Nimrod expedition. Shackleton was, likely, torn about Scott's upcoming expedition. He knew that his farthest south record would be broken, sooner than later, and he'd be an afterthought in the exploration world. But it killed him that he wasn't going south to make the historic run himself. But he also knew that it was unrealistic to put together such an enterprise in such a short time. Now, despite that fact, it didn't stop Scott and his supporters from pressing Shackleton regarding his future. Edward Wilson, Shackleton's former friend from the Discovery Expedition, tried to get Shackleton to agree to never go to the McMurdo Sound area ever again. In the end, Shackleton would pledge to Scott that he would not undertake any expedition until he heard about the status of Scott's endeavor, which was called the Terra Nova Expedition, after Scott's ship. However, just because Shackleton promised not to do something did not mean others had to follow his lead. 
and that would mean new rivals for the South Pole. The first of these challengers was Nobu Shirazi, who would lead the Japanese Antarctic Expedition, departing in November of 1910. In their two years in Antarctica, the team would become the first men to land in King Edward VII land, but otherwise their activities would not threaten Scott. However, a German expedition was a different story. The second German Antarctic expedition was organized by a German army officer named Wilhelm Filschner. Filschner had initially planned to have two teams and make a go for the South Pole. The first team would depart from the Ross Sea area, and the second would come from the other side of the continent at the Weddell Sea. The plan was eventually scaled back, but this idea of crossing the continent was something that Shackleton would not forget. Filchner's expedition, by the way, would eventually sail to the opposite side of the continent and penetrate further into the Weddell Sea than any previous expedition. In the process, they would make some geographic discoveries, including Vassal Bay, which will be important to Shackleton. Otherwise, Filchner's ship would get trapped in the ice and drift for eight months before breaking free and departing. And those two expeditions were the known rivals for a potential South Pole run. And I say known because there was actually another one, but that man's plans were privy only to him and a couple of his closest aides. And that man was Raoul de Munson. Raoul de Munson is, perhaps, the greatest polar explorer in history, and I want to take a moment to talk about him. Amundsen was born in Norway in 1872. He participated in the Belgica expedition in 1897 and 98, being amongst the first men to overwinter in Antarctica. It had been a harrowing experience, and Amundsen learned how not to conduct an expedition. From 1903 to 1906, Amundsen led the first expedition to successfully traverse Canada's Northwest Passage by boat between the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. For the journey, Amundsen used a small, shallow draft fishing vessel, hugging the coast as he went. It only had a crew of six. He would spend two winters trapped in the Arctic, and most people thought him dead. In this time, he learned how to survive in polar conditions, taking cues from the local Inuit people. He learned how to use dog sleds and the value of animal skins instead of bulky woolen clothing. Amundsen would return to Norway a hero and one of the most high-profile explorers in the world. By the way, Amundsen was not a traditional explorer. He was, like Shackleton, more of an adventurer. He loved the thrill of exploration and dismissed a lot of the scientific elements usually associated with polar journeys. Now, Amundsen had been trying to organize an expedition to go to the North Pole, he would finally get together financing and a team and plan on departing in 1910. However, rival American explorers Frederick Cook and Robert Perry would each claim to reach the North Pole, the former in 1908 and the latter in 1909. Now, the claims of both men were questioned by the scientific community. Cook and Perry had kept incomplete records, and inconsistencies found in the documentation made available caused many to question the validity of their claims. The National Geographic Society would, ultimately, certify Perry as the first person to reach the pole. However, as the Society was a major sponsor of Perry, there were questions of how impartial the review was. In the end, both men's claims are full of questions, even to this day. However, in 1910, the debate was much less an issue. To most of the world, Perry had reached the North Pole first. By the way, Cook had been a doctor on the Belgica, along with Amundsen, and is credited with saving the lives of men by having them eat fresh meat when they were trapped on the ice. Amundsen never forgot Cook and said his leadership surrounding nutrition saved his life that winter. Anyhow, as Amundsen prepared for his expedition, a run at the North Pole now looked a bit not that special. I mean, it was already done. What fun was that? Now, if Amundsen had known how sketchy Perry and Cook's data was, he might have been more inclined to believe that a go at the North Pole was a worthwhile objective. But in 1910, as interest in another Arctic expedition waned, he got another idea. 
Why not go for the South Pole instead? That was one of the last great undiscovered places in the world. And thus, as he got his ship readied and prepared to depart, he would decide that Antarctica was now his destination. He told no one else about this plan, other than a few of his most trusted men. Amundsen departed Norway on August 9, 1910. His ship, the Fram, would reach Madeira Island, east of Morocco, on September 6th. Three days later, he would reveal his plans to his crew, saying he wanted to make a detour to Antarctica. None of his men backed out when given the opportunity. Amundsen sent telegrams to key people back home, asking for forgiveness for what he was doing. He also cabled Robert Falcon Scott, saying that he had changed his plans and was, quote, proceeding south, end quote. There were no details regarding his plans or where he intended to set up his camp. Amundsen's ploy was roundly condemned around the world, even in much of Norway. It was simply proper form to announce when and where you were going when you set out to explore. And with that, I want to back up a moment and talk about Scott's Terra Nova expedition. The Terra Nova expedition was seven years in the making. This was Scott's great, glorious endeavor to reach the South Pole. Shackleton had blazed the way, and now all Scott had to do was best his rival by 100 miles or 160 kilometers. The Terra Nova expedition and its objectives were again big. There was a large science team, and there were plans to explore all sorts of areas, not just make a go for the pole. Five men from the Nimrod expedition were involved in this affair, including geologist Raymond Priestley. Douglas Mawson, the Australian geologist, turned down a chance to join Scott's team and would lead his own expedition in 1911. Among Scott's men was Dr. Edward Wilson. Terra Nova departed Cardiff, Wales on June 15, 1910. The ship would go to Australia and then New Zealand before heading to Antarctica in December. At this point, Shackleton and the rest of the world was dark about the status of Scott and Amundsen, not to mention the German and Japanese expeditions. As for Shackleton, he would continue to tour, giving 123 lectures to 250,000 people by the end of 1910. And while he toured around the world, Shackleton would entertain ideas for the future with regards to exploration. He would speak to Douglas Mawson about combining for an expedition to the Antarctic, but Shackleton frustrated Mawson with his indecision, plus he was concerned about Shackleton's health. The boss, as Shackleton was often called by his men, had gotten heavier, was drinking more, and was a heavy smoker. Mawson suspected Shackleton was suffering from angina, a condition that caused pain in the chest and upper body, and was caused by an inadequate blood supply to the heart. Ultimately, Mawson would finance his own expedition and go it alone. This would be the Australia-Asian Antarctic Expedition, and it would make him famous. Other ideas that Shackleton bandied about included circumnavigating Antarctica and flying a plane to the region, but nothing ever really got going. The idea that stuck with Shackleton, however, assuming one of these ongoing expeditions would reach the pole, was something bold and audacious. Shackleton understood that you needed to have big, easy-to-understand goals in order to capture the imagination of investors and the world. Example, if I say I marched west from New York City for 800 miles, that's sort of nebulous. When you don't have an endpoint, people can't really see in their mind's eye exactly what it means. But if I say I marched from New York City to Chicago, well, that's different. Even without a map, people can say, aha, I get it. By the way, New York to Chicago is about 800 miles. Anyhow, with that in mind, Shackleton honed in on his next idea, writing to his wife, quote, I feel another expedition, unless it crosses the continent, is not much, end quote. And so you can see where Shackleton's thoughts were heading. But for now, he could do nothing. If Scott and Amundsen and everyone else failed to reach the pole, well, he could always make another try himself. But in the meantime, he could only wait. And as 1911 progressed, he grew more and more frustrated with his lot in life. Emily would get pregnant with their third child and give birth to a son, 
Edward Arthur Alexander on July 15, 1911. And while Shackleton tried to make a go of being at home more often, that quickly ended and he found himself bored and restless and on the move. Shackleton would spend more and more time in London, drinking and carousing and chasing women. The situation wasn't helped as Emily was battling some serious postpartum depression, and the two fought constantly. She called these years the most difficult and loneliest of their lives. The family would eventually move back to London so that Emily didn't feel so isolated. Eventually, word reached England that Scott had set up camp at McMurdo Sound, as planned, and would head for the pole in the spring, probably in October or November. Anna Munson was now camped at the Bay of Wales, an inlet at the Great Ice Barrier, and he too would head off in the spring. More than ever, this was now a race. Amundsen was closer to the pole by about 60 miles, or 110 kilometers. As a note, in previous episodes, I said that the Bay of Wales was about 100 miles closer, or 160 kilometers. But that's wrong. Sorry for that error. Now, on the downside of things, Amundsen would have to find his own way through the mountains, a huge unknown. Plus, there were some concerns that the area around the Bay of Wales was unstable, which could prove to be disastrous. No matter, word of the explorers made Shackleton antsy. He hated being on the sidelines. Of it all, he would say, quote, I long for the unbeaten trail again, end quote. But for now, he would wait. Money was the number one issue. His book just wasn't bringing in that much, and all of his other ventures had netted him next to nothing. He continued to lecture, but the money wasn't anything big, and he was growing tired of the circuit. Plus, he was no longer the flavor of the moment, and he knew that someone else would soon supplant him as England's newest exploration hero. Another issue to arise was Shackleton's brother, Frank, a disreputable character who had been a suspect in the theft of the Irish crown jewels. Well, Frank's unwanted head would pop up again when he was arrested for defrauding an elderly lady of a thousand pounds. It turned out that Frank Shackleton was heavily in debt, owing over 85,000 pounds to various creditors. The situation was a mess, and then some. Frank Shackleton would ultimately spend 15 months in prison doing hard labor for his crimes, and with his brother making headlines, Shackleton was reluctant to entertain any ideas about organizing any new expedition. On March 9, 1912, London's Daily Chronicle newspaper would drop the story that everyone was waiting for. Roald Amundsen had reached the South Pole on December 14, 1911. There was no news of Captain Scott and his team. Shackleton knew that he was now irrelevant. Still, he praised Amundsen, saying he was, quote, perhaps the greatest polar explorer of today, end quote and he encouraged his fellow countrymen to celebrate Amundsen and his achievement, just as the Norwegians would have celebrated Scott if the positions were reversed. What Amundsen had done was quite extraordinary. He had crossed the barrier, just as Shackleton had done, but when he got to the Transantarctic Mountains, he had been forced to find a new route onto the Antarctic Plateau. This would be the Alex Heiberg Glacier. The glacier was only a quarter of the length of Beardmore Glacier, making it easier than Scott's climb. Amundsen had succeeded by laying out depots along the route across the barrier. He had then used dogs, and had brought along an expert handler who had learned from the Inuit. And Amundsen had used skis, and had even included a champion skier on the expedition. All this had made a huge difference regarding the distances the team had covered. In the end, Amundsen and four companions crossed 1,600 miles, or 2,600 kilometers, of unexplored Antarctic ice fields and glaciers. It had taken them 99 days to reach the pole and return. They had laid out their supplies exceptionally well, and the men would eat, on average, 5,000 calories a day. Munson even claimed he had gained weight on the journey. It will be very different for Scott and his team. Another thing Munson had done, or not done, was any sort of scientific research. He had not tried to couch his endeavor in anything more than a go at the pole. 
It allowed him to focus his energies and resources on doing one specific task, and it paid off. The world celebrated Amundsen's achievements, but some, especially those in England, were upset. The man had broken the unwritten code of declaring his intentions of exploration in advance, and the lack of scientific element was a black mark in the eyes of many. They said he was just an adventurer, and his use of dogs and skis were frowned on by the British establishment. An example of this occurred later in 1912, when Amundsen traveled to London to speak to the Royal Geographical Society. After a speech, one of the Society's members would make a mocking and insulting toast, saying, quote, three cheers for the dogs, end quote, as if it was the dogs who deserved the praise for reaching the pole more than Amundsen. Shackleton was, however, impressed by the Norwegian explorer. He and Amundsen were cut from the same cloth, adventurers with little use for the traditional establishment. They were both outsiders and were thus often criticized by the old-school types. With regard to Robert Falcon Scott, well, word of his fate would not be delivered for another year. Here's a synopsis of his story. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Scott would depart on November 1st, 1911, with a team of 16 men, plus dogs and ponies. He had sent out his motorized sledges earlier to lay supply depots. However, the two motorized sledges would fail after less than 50 miles. On December 11th, Scott would send back some of his men along with the dogs. As they went up Beardmore Glacier, it was now just men pulling the sledges. On January 5th, Scott would continue forward with just himself and four other men, sending the remaining team members back. Amongst those returning to the coast was Tom Crean, who will be very important in our upcoming episodes. One of the five men accompanying Scott was Dr. Edward Wilson. Scott's team would pass Shackleton's farthest south and continue on toward the pole. And then on January 16th, about 15 miles from their objective, they could see a flag in the distance. At that point, they knew Munson had beaten them. The next day at the pole, the disheartened team would find a tent with some supplies. There was also a note from Amundsen informing Scott that he had reached the pole on December 14th. That day, Scott would write in his journal, quote, Great God, this is an awful place and terrible enough for us to have labored to without the reward of priority. Well, it is something to have got here, end quote. The return journey was now ahead of the team and things would not go well. Some of the men were sick and like Shackleton's team, food was running very low. The team would slowly fall apart as they headed back to the coast. They made it down Beardmore Glacier and onto the Great Ice Barrier, but by this time, they were in terrible shape. One of the men would die on February 17th, the result of injuries, malnutrition, and severe frostbite. In March, a second man, Lawrence Oates, who could barely move, would simply announce that he was going for a walk and wander out onto the barrier, sacrificing himself so that his comrades would have a better chance of survival. The remaining three men would inch onward, but on March 20th, just 11 miles, or 18 kilometers, short of their next supply depot, they were hit by a blizzard and could go no further. Unable to move on, and their food gone, the men wasted away. Scott's final entry into his journal was on March 29th, the date they are presumed to have died. He said, quote, 
Every day we have been ready to start for our depot 11 miles away, but outside the door of the tent it remains a scene of swirling drift. I do not think we can hope for any better things now. We shall stick it out to the end, but we are getting weaker, of course, and the end cannot be far. It seems a pity, but I do not think I can write more. R. Scott. Last entry. For God's sake, look after our people. End quote. The deaths of Scott and his team were especially tragic as Scott had wanted the dogs, with supplies, sent out to meet the team on the ice. But a variety of circumstances would prevent this from happening, including terrible weather, conflicting priorities, and simple bad luck. Scott's body would not be found until the following November. When word of his death spread, he was mourned as a martyr and a noble hero. In fact, there was this heroic myth that emerged around Scott. He was the epitome of the bold and brave Englishman, only undone by the incompetence of others and some bad luck. This view would hold for decades until the actual specifics of Scott's expedition were studied by later historians and scholars. And with that, views of Scott shifted. People criticized his secretive and prickly nature, and they realized he was unimaginative and too stuck in tradition, and he definitely made some dubious decisions. In the end, the criticisms are mostly true, but no one could question the man's bravery. To me, at least in this point of my research on this era, Scott simply lacked innovativeness and a nimble mind. This was so needed to succeed at this time and place. No matter, the death of Scott overshadowed, to a degree, Roald Amundsen's achievement. However, in some ways, it sort of washed the competitiveness of polar exploration out of everyone's systems. There were no more poles to reach, no more passages to find. It gave Shackleton a clean slate as he made future plans. And thus, by 1913, Shackleton was, behind the scenes, preparing for his next adventure, crossing the continent. He would, by the end of the year, announce his plans to the public. The Imperial Transantarctic Expedition would seek to cross the continent a journey of 1,800 miles, or 2,900 kilometers. To many, Shackleton's proposal was borderline insane. How could he expect to carry enough food and supplies to cross the entire continent? And to be honest, after the deaths of Scott and his men, there was a hesitancy to risk more lives. I mean, what was the point? Well, to Shackleton, the adventure was the point. It was to do something no one else had ever done before. And to be honest, Shackleton saw no other options out there. The Antarctic was his calling, even if he had not originally asked for it. He would later say to Emily, quote, I suppose I'm really no good for anything but the Antarctic, end quote. As Shackleton neared 40, he probably saw this as his one last chance to do something extraordinary, a way to make his mark in the history books. And even if he failed, the idea of an expedition reinvigorated him. He would say, quote, I love the fight, and when things are easy, I hate it, end quote. And thus Shackleton's plans, as you would expect, were ambitious. For this expedition, he would have not just one ship, but two. Shackleton would lead the first ship to the Weddell Sea area and deposit a shore party at Vassal Bay, which had been discovered a few years earlier by the German explorer Wilhelm Filschner. And at the same time, another team would land in the McMurdo Sound area. This team would then go out onto the Great Ice Barrier and lay supply depots all the way to the base of Beardmore Glacier and then return to camp. The team at Vassal Bay, led by Shackleton, would then head overland to the South Pole. That part of the journey would be about 1,000 miles, or 1,600 kilometers, through lands that had never been explored. It was pretty crazy, as there was no guarantee of what lay between the coast and the pole from that direction. And let's not forget, getting to the pole was just half of it. They would then have to continue marching north and go down Beardmore Glacier just to get to the supply depots, assuming the depots were laid as expected. The entire journey would take 120 days, meaning the team would need to cover 15 miles, or 28 kilometers, a day. Over half of the trek would be through unknown territory. 
It was audacious and bold and more than a little nuts. But for Ernest Shackleton, well, that was how he did this kind of thing. Shackleton now had to raise money. He approached the Royal Geographical Society, but they found the plan light on details and dangerous looking. Still, they would give him a token sum of a thousand pounds towards the endeavor. Shackleton would also take his plans to the Royal Navy, asking for a ship, officers, and crew. But the unstable situation in Europe made them reluctant to detach valuable resources from the active fleet, and they passed. When large donations failed to come in right away, Shackleton appealed directly to the public, asking for donations as small as 50 pounds. And then out of the blue, he would get the donor of a lifetime in James Caird, a 77-year-old Scottish millionaire. Caird had not really been an active supporter of exploration, but for some reason he took to Shackleton's cause and offered £24,000 with no strings attached. In addition to being the single biggest chunk of cash Shackleton would receive, it spurred others to get involved. The British government would give £10,000, as would Dudley Docker, a Birmingham industrialist. And another major donor was 60-year-old Janet Sancombe-Wills, who had become enamored with Shackleton. And there would be others as well, most notably Shackleton's oldest and most faithful supporter, Elizabeth Dawson Lampton. As a result, Shackleton's ambitious plan would be a go. He would have two ships and two teams. Now, this does not mean that he wasn't in need of financing. He would always be hustling for more cash. But it meant that money problems would not loom over the enterprise like it had with Nimrod. With the expedition planning now moving along, Shackleton would negotiate newspaper rights for a story, a book, and even film rights. And the next thing on his list was putting together his team. According to legend, Shackleton put an ad in a London newspaper announcing his plans. It reportedly said, quote, Men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in event of success, End quote. Now, we do not know if this story is true, but no matter. When word spread of Shackleton's new venture, 5,000 people would apply to participate, including what Shackleton said were, quote, three sporty girls, end quote. He politely declined the applications of the young women and went about putting together his team, plus getting a pair of ships. By the way, as a note, regarding the two teams, one I will call the Endurance or Weddell Sea team, which would be Shackleton's group, and would be going to the Weddell Sea region. The Endurance would be Shackleton's ship. The other I will call the Aurora team or Ross Sea team, which is the men who would be laying the depots on the opposite side of the continent. Aurora was the ship that would be purchased for this part of the expedition. That said, I want to talk about the two ships, especially Endurance. We will start with Aurora. Aurora was a 40-year-old whaling ship and was bought for £3,200 from Douglas Mawson. Mawson had just returned from his own Antarctic expedition and needed to pay his bills, so Shackleton got the vessel at a great price. The ship was sturdy and reliable, if a bit old. On the other side of the coin was Endurance, Shackleton's vessel. Endurance was originally named Polaris and was brand new, having been built in Norway by the finest polar ship builders in the world. The 350-ton vessel had originally been designed to provide luxury accommodations for small tourists and hunting parties in the Arctic. There were roomy passenger cabins, a spacious dining area, a smoke room, and even a dark room for developing photos. Polaris had no hold and limited cargo space, but it was specially designed for sailing in the ice. Its keel was made up of four pieces of solid oak, and the sides were as thick as 30 inches. The bow, which is what would meet the ice head-on, had a thickness of 52 inches. At the time of its completion in 1912, it was one of the strongest wooden ships ever built. Now, there was one other important design element I want to mention, and that was the shape of the hull. Polar ships were usually bowl-shaped. This way, if the ice closed around the hull, the ship would be squeezed upward. 
Polaris's hull, however, did not have the bowl-shaped bottom. She was designed to ram and crush the ice in her path. She was never intended to be frozen in heavy ice pack. If the ship was stuck in the ice, she would not be pushed upwards. Instead, it would be a contest between the strength of the ship's hull versus the pressure of the ice pack. No matter, the vessel's original buyer would back out due to financial reasons, and the builder would be stuck with a ship that, while quite innovative, was too slow to serve as a yacht and without a hold, not able to be used as a whaler. Shackleton would thus get a heavily discounted deal, buying the ship for £11,600, well below its original cost. Shackleton renamed the ship Endurance after his family motto, By Endurance We Conquer. Little side note about Endurance. She would be one of the first ships to ever be insured for a time in the ice flows. The ship's £10,000 policy would cost Shackleton a £665 premium. Now, regarding Shackleton's team, I won't go into detail in this episode, as we will learn more about them next time. However, I want to highlight a few men. The Ross party team would include Aeneas McIntosh and Ernest Joyce, both veterans of the Nimrod expedition. Interestingly, Shackleton had offered the lead of the short party to Dr. Eric Marshall, who had gone farther south with Shackleton back in 1909. Marshall, who despised Shackleton, passed on the job, mostly because he felt the plan was unsound. For endurance, Shackleton's trusted buddy Frank Wilde would be second in command. Another Nimrod veteran was George Marston, the expedition's artist. Philip Brocklehurst, a geologist from the Nimrod expedition, had initially planned on traveling again with Shackleton, but before departing, he would receive his commission in the army and his unit would be mobilized, preventing his participation. Endurance's captain was 42-year-old Frank Worsley, a New Zealander. Another interesting addition was Frank Hurley, a 28-year-old Australian photographer. He had participated in Douglas Mawson's recent Antarctic expedition. Hurley would shoot photos and film of the Endurance expedition. And the last person I'll mention is Tom Crean, who was the ship's second officer. Crean, like Shackleton, was an Irishman, and he and Shackleton had been friends since the Discovery expedition. Crean had a reputation as a tough and iron-willed man. He had been on Scott's Terra Nova expedition, and at one point he had struck out alone across the barrier to go get help for his comrades, one of whom was incapacitated and dying. He would march 35 miles in 18 hours, with only three biscuits and a bit of chocolate for food, and no tent or sleeping bag. His epic march would be a success, and his comrades rescued. Crean would be awarded the Albert Medal for Lifesaving for his heroic deed. The man will be immensely important on this expedition. There are lots of other people we will discuss in the coming episodes. Otherwise, I do want to mention one other element about the upcoming expedition, and this was dogs. After months of success, Shackleton was convinced that dogs were the ticket to getting things done. Thus, he purchased 120 Siberian Husky-type dogs, each weighing around 100 pounds. Only 99 of the dogs would survive the trip to London. Now, while Shackleton did have some men with dog-handling experience, none were experts, and the same thing was true for skis. Okay, with all of that said, let us move on. Next, I want to mention two threats to Shackleton's expedition that would emerge in the summer of 1914. The first was war. Europe was a powder keg of intrigue and plots, and the drums of war were being sounded throughout the continent. This would do several things. First, it would limit who could go on Shackleton's expedition. England was simply not going to let her soldiers and sailors go off adventuring with war on the horizon. Second, it would threaten the actual departure of endurance. If war broke out, the ship might be needed by the Admiralty, not to mention her crew. Now, the second thing that would emerge as a threat to Shackleton was Felix Koenig, an Austrian scientist and climber. Koenig had been with William Filchner on his expedition to the Weddell Sea a few years earlier. Well, Koenig began to organize his own expedition, one very similar to what Shackleton was proposing. 
In fact, Filchner, who was friendly with Shackleton, even proposed getting the two teams to work together on the venture. However, events that summer would ultimately prevent the two men from meeting, and the idea never came to fruition. As for Koenig, he would never leave port as a ship, the Osterreich, would be taken for the war effort. Koenig would eventually spend three years in a Russian prisoner of war camp. So, as summer progressed and Shackleton got closer and closer to departing, the threat of war hung over everything, but Shackleton could only push forward. He would spend his time raising money and procuring supplies and gear and men. While docked at the Thames River, Endurance would be visited by Queen Alexandra and her sister, the Empress Maria of Russia. By the way, King Edward VII, who had been a supporter of Shackleton's, had died in 1910. His widow, Alexandra, who had a close bond with Shackleton, was there to support him. She would give Shackleton two Bibles, a Union Jack, and a silk replica of her personal royal standard. In one of the Bibles, she wrote, quote, May the Lord help you do your deeds, guide you through all dangers by land and sea. May you see the works of the Lord and all his wonders in the deep, end quote. And then on June 28, 1914, the match to the powder keg that was Europe was lit when Archduke Franz Ferdinand, the heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne, was assassinated in Sarajevo. All of Europe began preparing for war, even as the diplomats tried desperately to keep things from exploding. Knowing what was likely going to happen, Shackleton hated the idea of continuing with the expedition, as he felt that he was abandoning his country. But his friends and colleagues, as well as government officials, told him any conflict would be over soon enough and to continue his preparations, which is what he did. On August 3rd, a general mobilization was called in England. As this happened, Shackleton would have a meeting with King George V. The king gave Shackleton a Union Jack and wished him Godspeed. A few hours later, Great Britain declared war on Germany. At this point, Shackleton offered endurance and his services to the Admiralty. Four of his crew resigned to join their units, and Shackleton told the rest of the men that they were free to resign to enlist. As for Shackleton and endurance, the Admiralty viewed them as having limited value. There was not a big need for a slow passenger ship that was designed primarily for polar travel. And if endurance didn't sail, the money and resources of the expedition would essentially be lost. Also, the longer endurance was delayed, it only became more at risk, as shipping was already being attacked on the high seas. Thus, on August 8, 1914, Shackleton received a one-word telegram from Winston Churchill, the first Lord of the Admiralty. It said, Proceed. And thus, Ernest Shackleton and Endurance set sail for the South. And that, my friends, is where we will leave things for today. Next time, we will get the Endurance Expedition on its way, and it will be one of the greatest stories of exploration and survival in history. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed things. Please take care. I will see you next time.